Good morning. I greet you all in the wonderful name of our precious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Um, I'd forgotten my notes on. <laughs> yeah, we would see how it goes without the notes. <laughs> we thank God for bringing us once again um, together today to draw near to him and to sing out songs of worship and honor to his name and to hear from his word as he speaks to us and indeed it is our confidence that god speaks through his word he speaks clearly he speaks um, from his word with power he speaks with conviction and he speaks with authority let me take this time to welcome um, any first-time visitors um, in our midst? If you're a first-time visitor, maybe stand up so that they can see you. Uh, any first-time visitors? All right, all right. Uh, what's your name, brother? Kumbo. Yes, uh, I met Kumbo during the week. Uh, welcome, brother. Uh, right. Um, we. We have been going through the Psalms of Lament, right? I, I don't know for how many weeks now, uh, so I'm not keeping even a record of this because uh, it's, a, as I said, it's a, it's a kind of an abrupt series, right? Um, it's an unplanned series. It's a, a one sermon led to another and then to another. Um, so for the month of November, I saw that November has uh, five uh, Sundays. So for these five Sundays of November, um, we will still be going through the Psalms of Lament up until the last month of, of November. Um, last week we looked at Psalm 38 where we saw suffering and sin, right? Um, and we spoke about the fact that um, suffering is not always connected um, with sin. It doesn't mean that people that suffer, suffer because of sin. But sometimes, as we saw, as, as was the case with um, Psalm um, uh, 38, is that there is a link, right, with, um, between suffering and sin. Um, and, and we saw with David that David was in the midst of this turmoil, this, this despair. And the reason he was in that despair was because of his sin. He even acknowledges it in that psalm. Then we said that we will look at Psalm 26 today. Psalm 26 is a cry of an innocent man who is also in despair. The reason for the despair is not known, but we can speculate that it was because people were accusing him and he's an innocent man. It's still a Psalm of David. So let's look at Psalm 26. Psalm 26. Psalm 26 verse 1 to 12 my title will be Vindicate Me. Vindicate Me. As we um, go through the sermon, we will know what the word vindicate means. So Psalm 26, verse 1 to 12. I read from the ESV, follow me as I read God's word. But before we read, actually, let's <laughs> present the word to the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, our Lord and God, we want to thank you for this time. We want to thank you for your word 
your word that is clear, your word that is sufficient, your word that is authoritative and necessary for our walk with you. We want to thank you, Father, for each and every individual who is here, those who are hearing the word of God, whether they will hear um, presently or even um, as they listen to the recordings afterwards. We pray that, Lord, you will make yourself known in their lives. You will um, display your glory, display your grace, display your kindness towards them, that your name will be glorified. As we go through your word this morning, I pray, Lord, that you give me clarity of speech and clarity of thought that I may preach in the Spirit's power and not in my own strength. In the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this is our prayer. Amen. Last week, as I said, we looked at Psalm 38. We saw David lamenting um, his sin that led to suffering. But this week, we see David suffering even though he's innocent. Sometimes there's a direct link between our suffering and our sin. Sometimes there isn't a direct link. Psalm 26 is an example of a time when David was suffering even though he was innocent. He could have been suffering some illness or defeat that led his enemies to say that it was because he was sinful. Or they could have simply been ridiculing him because they thought he was sinful. Either way, he's being falsely accused. And so he cries out to the Lord in, in this psalm, Psalm 26. Now the question that I have for you, and, and the question I want us to even uh, interrogate or think about this morning as we go through the sermon, is what should we do when we are falsely accused? What should we do when people say that we are no different from the world? What should we do when people say that Christians are horrible people who do horrible things? We hear those things, right? Yes. We hear those things oftentimes. Christians are, 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 are accused of, of being hypocrites. And, and sometimes, I must admit, sometimes the accusation is real. But sometimes... The accusation does not hold any water. What should we do? What should we do when people claim that those who claim, when people say that those who claim to be Christians actually do horrible things? Psalm 26 teaches us exactly how to respond. Now let us read Psalm 26. This is God's word. Let us hear him. Of David, vindicate me, O Lord. For I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me, and test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. 
O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. This is the word of God. This psalm is divided into four stanzas. They are framed by key words. You'll notice that as we observe the psalm itself, that there are key words that frame the psalm. The first stanza is in verse 1 to 3. It's a petition portion of this lament. It's framed by four petitions. And the key word in these three verses is the word walk. In verse 1, David says, I have walked in my integrity. In verse 3, David says, I walk in your faithfulness. The, the, the first stanza in verse 1 and, and, and three, to 3 is parallel or it is similar with the last stanza of verse 11 and 12. The final stanza is framed by two petitions and again, that key word walk appears. In verse 11, David says, I shall walk in my integrity. The second stanza is in verse 4 and verse 5. This is essentially a protest portion of the, of the lament. It's framed by the key word sit. In verse 4, David says, I do not sit with men of falsehood. In verse 5, he says, I will not sit with the wicked. The third stanza is in verse 6 to verse 10. It is the praise portion of the lament. It's framed by the key word, hands. Right? You'll notice as you, as you read, you'll see the words hands. In verse 6, David says, I, I wash my hands in innocence. In verse 10, he talks of the bloodthirsty man. He says, in whose hands are evil devices. Because the first stanza and the fourth stanza are similar or, or parallel, as I said, I'm going to combine them and divide my sermon into three parts. What we will see today is that these stanzas will teach us three ways to respond when we are falsely accused. Three ways to, to respond when we are falsely accused. This is the first way. The first way is when we are falsely accused, we should look to God as our judge and redeemer. We should look to God as our judge and redeemer. We see this in verse 3, verse 1 to 3, and verse 11 and 12. This is the first stanza, as I said. Like I said earlier, there are four petitions in this stanza. You see the word vindicate me, then prove me, try me, and test me. These words are from the courtroom. They are courtroom language. David starts by asking God to be his judge. The word translated vindicate me could also be translated judge me. He doesn't want his false accusers to be his judges. He wants God to be his judge. This reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 when Paul says in verses 3 to 5, he says, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. 
In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, I do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. One commentator says that vindication is the act of God whereby he declares a person to be innocent and avenges him against the false accusers. The, the only way that David will be vindicated from his false accusers is if God is his judge. But not only does David want God to make the final judgment, he also wants God to do the cross-examination. This comes out in the next three petitions in verse 2. Prove me, O Lord, and try me, and test my heart and my mind. It's as if David is saying here, put me in the dark. Give me a thorough cross-examination. And when you do, you won't find any blood on my sword. In verse 1, David says, I have walked in my integrity in the past. Right? In verse 3, he says, I, I, I walk in your faithfulness now in the present. In verse 11, he says, I will walk in my integrity in the future. I'm clean. Test me like gold. Turn up the heat in the interrogation room. I won't fold. I'm being falsely accused by my enemies, but I am innocent. I want you to be my judge, God. I know you'll discover the truth and vindicate me. Well, what's the application of this stanza for us who face false accusation from time to time? How do we live lives as Christians when our reputation is constantly tarnished by hypocrites. We should look to God as our judge and redeemer. We, we shouldn't try to vindicate ourselves. And we shouldn't look to any mere human to vindicate us. God's the only one who can truly vindicate us. And he ultimately does this through Jesus Christ, doesn't he? David was not sinless. We saw this last week, right? David was not a sinless man, and we are not sinless. There's a sense in which David was innocent and being falsely accused. But there's another sense in which David was a sinner as well. But not so with Christ. He, he, was, like, he, he, he was like us in every way, but yet Hebrews chapter, five, chapter 4 verse 15 said, He was without sin. He was falsely accused and ended up dying a criminal's death even though he was innocent. He did this to pay the penalty for our sin. He's the only one who can truly pray, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. He can truly pray that because he is without sin. He was tried in all manner of ways, but he was without sin. When he stood before Pilate, uh, Pontius Pilate, and he stood before him and he was uh, uh, 
He, he, he was scrutinized. Uh, Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. He was without sin. He can truly pray this prayer. He can truly say, I have walked in my integrity and I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. And the Lord did vindicate Christ through his resurrection, right? He was raised from the dead. It pleased God to raise him from the dead for our justification so that you and I can be made right with God. It pleased the Father not only to crush him on the cross for our sin, but after he crushed him and he was buried, he raised him up from the dead. When God raised him from the dead, it was as if God was putting a stamp of approval on the sacrifice that Christ has made on our behalf. God was saying, approved. This sacrifice is sufficient enough to draw many to myself. This, suffic- this su- sufficient sacrifice is enough to bring sinners to repentance, to bring sinners and make them children of God. You see, our only hope of vindication in the face of false accusation is if God is our judge. And our only hope of being acquitted in God's courtroom is Christ. Because only Christ is truly innocent. Right? So let us look at Christ. It's only through Christ that we can pray, redeem me and be gracious to me as verse 11 says. It's only through Christ that we can stand on level ground, as verse 12 says. If you have not placed your faith in Christ, you not only have human beings that will accuse you. Satan stands before the throne of God day and night and accuses you. And without Christ's righteousness, he has solid case against you. And I plead with you, I implore you, I beg you, turn to Christ. Accept his perfect righteousness and his perfect sacrifice as your only hope of salvation. So how do we respond to false accusation? How do we respond to those who think we are hypocrites? We must look to God as our judge and to Christ as our redeemer. Not only that, but how do you respond when you are falsely accused? Secondly, we should live godly lives. We should live godly lives. Verse 4 and verse 5. That doesn't mean that we still don't live lives that are faithful, uh, of faithfulness and integrity. Even though David wasn't perfect here, there's still a sense in which he was a godly Man, in the first stanza we are told generally that David lives with integrity in the second and third stanzas we are given specifics of what that means the second stanza is in verse 4 and verse 5 is framed by the keyword sit David doesn't sit with men of falsehood nor does he befriend hypocrites he hates the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked David claims he doesn't now associate with wicked people. He doesn't intend to be so in the future as well. This is a protest to God. David is establishing his innocence before God. 
He implies that it is, it is not right for him to be falsely accused when he walks in integrity. But he's also giving us a pattern of how we should respond when we are falsely accused. When we are falsely accused, we should live godly lives. The biggest weapon against those who accuse you of sin, accuse you of, of, of living a sinful life, is to live a godly life. Isn't that what Paul says to Timothy? That those who uh, are looking down on him because he is young, he should set an example before them. And one of the ways he sets an example is impurity. Right? In the way he lives, he doesn't say uh, those who look down on you because you are young, stand up and tell them that they should not look down on you. He says, you know what? Set an example with the way you live your life. Let your life display integrity. Let your life display godliness. Isn't that what is needed among young people today? Isn't that what is needed among pastors today? Isn't that what is needed among Christians today? Godliness, integrity. This reminds me of First Peter chapter three. When we are treated poorly by the world, Peter says, "Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling." In First Peter chapter three verse nineteen, he goes on to say that it's fine to suffer for righteousness' sake. In First Peter three fourteen. He says that if we are living godly lives in a godless world, we can at least have a good conscience. And if we have a good conscience in our good deeds, then when we are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. 1 Peter 3.16 So how should we respond to false accusations? Well, we should look to God as our judge and redeemer. And we should do so as well by living godly lives. When we do this, we'll heap burning coals on our enemies' head. One of the best defenses against false accusation is a good defense, right? We need to live godly lives. We all have to live among the godless in this world. We do. There's no uh, exclusive Christian community. In fact, I don't think it's even biblical to have an exclusive Christian community. Because you are lacking what you should be doing. The, 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 The Great Commission, right? How do you fulfill the Great Commission in an exclusive Christian community? That's why when God saves us, he doesn't give us new properties, right? He saves you and leaves you where you are. Well, he can bless you and you buy a house um, somewhere differently. But he saves you and leaves you in that community, right? 
In that community where you have that neighbor of yours who's a drunkard, where you have that neighbor of yours who's a prostitute, where you have that neighbor of yours who, who, who lives an immoral life, he puts you there so that you can be the light. I think I've lost my way, but let's, let's come back here. <laughs> so so, so um, we, we live in this world, right? And, and, and we live in a world full of people who claim to be Christians, but who live godless lives. We, we can't avoid that, right? We are in the world. Verse 4 and verse 5 also reminds us that though we are in the world, we are not part of the world. We shouldn't join the world in their ways. We shouldn't associate with them and their sin. Sure, we are called to preach the gospel to them. So when I say we wouldn't associate with them, that doesn't mean we shouldn't have anything to do with them. Right? It means that we shouldn't think the way they think. We, we shouldn't live the way they live. We shouldn't love what they love. That means not to sit with them. That's the first specific thing we learn about David walking in integrity. He does not participate in the things of the world. The things that dishonor God. He does not participate in worldliness. I I think I'm 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 digressing again, but this is this is I think will help. Um, uh, Josh Mack, um, a pastor in in Living Hope, uh, defines worldliness as he says when when sin becomes normal and righteousness becomes strange, that's when you see that you are worldly. When sin becomes normal and righteousness becomes strange, that's when worldliness has come into your life. So we see David here as we learn um, how to respond to accusations. The third, the third way of responding is that we should gather regularly with God's people for worship. We should gather regularly with God's people for worship. Verses 6 to verse 10. The, first stanza, uh, the third stanza, as we see it in verse 6 to verse 10, teaches us another specific way that David walks in integrity. It moves from David's moral life to his religious life. It moves from protest to praise. It is framed by the key word hands in this section. In verse 6, David says that he washes his hands in innocence. Why does he do this? Because he desired to go around the Lord's altar. The, the, the wicked want to assemble to do evil. That they have evil devices in their hands, as you look at verse 10. David wants to assemble with God's people to worship. David wants to be in the house 
of the Lord. He wants to proclaim thanksgiving and tell of God's wondrous deeds. He, he loves the habitation of the Lord's house. Uh, 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 that is, he, he loves the Lord's presence. He loves the glory of God and wants to see it. David's desire to praise God teaches us the third way we should respond when we are falsely accused. We should gather regularly with God's people for worship. God's people have always assembled together for worship. They, they do this in the first place because they love God and, and want to declare His marvelous deeds in saving them. But they also do this as a way to show that they are set apart from the world. Their hands have been washed by the blood of the sacrificial lamb. They no longer are covered in the, with the blood of sin. The Israelites came into the presence of God through the blood of literal lambs. We, we come in the presence of God through the blood of Jesus Christ, the lamp of God who takes away the sin of the world. When we gather with God's people through the sacrifice of Christ, we are reminded that we will not be swept away with sinners. As verse 9 says, this is good encouragement for those who are falsely accused. This is encouragement for those who live among the ungodly in the world. This is encouragement for those who have to suffer the reality that some people claim to belong to God live just like the world. The church has been purchased with Christ's blood. When we gather as a church, we are reminded of the hope we have in Christ. And so, we give thanks to God. In the book of Hebrews, we are encouraged in, verse, in chapter 10, verse 24, to consider how to steer up one another to love and good works. Uh, this is similar to what we learned in the second stanza. We are called to live godly lives when we are falsely accused. But how does the author of Hebrews tell us we are to do that? Verse 25 of chapter 10, he says, By not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He says, we should not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. Let me say this. You are here. That's encouragement enough. You are gathered with God's people. That's something to rejoice about. You have decided to wake up in the morning, drive here or walk to church. That's good enough. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. We should not make this a habit. We know 
that we can have, we can build good habits and bad habits, right? That the author of Hebrews here is calling us to shed as if we are a lizard shedding its old skin, to shed this bad habit of neglecting to meet together. Why is this important? This is something that God has, has given us right he did not save us he, he saves us individually but he brings us in a community one of the ways that we can truly celebrate what christ has done for us is by gathering together as you are doing now and may god bless you for that may god give you the grace and the strength i know sometimes we become tired right i i know sometimes we we become discouraged but, but here's the thing, especially as we go through the Psalms of Lament, right? here's the thing. Though we lament our conditions that are painful, though we lament the difficulties that we go through, we should not do so by separating ourselves from the community of Christ. The community of Christ is one of the things that God has given for our encouragement, for our growth, right? For our progress in the faith. In other words, there's no way we can make progress in the faith while we continue neglecting the gathering together of the saints. In fact, let me say this. In all the Bible, Old Testament to New Testament, Genesis to Revelation. There is nowhere in the Bible where you see solo Christians. Solo Christians, I mean that you become a Christian but you're not connected to a local church. We never see that. Why? Because Christ promises in Matthew 16 saying on this rock the confession that Jesus Christ is the Messiah he is Lord and he saves on this rock I will build my church in other words the church belongs to Christ doesn't it it belongs to Christ we are the body of Christ Paul uses the imagery in first corinthians chapter 12 of a body and he says that a body for it to function it needs all the parts right now i'm not a doctor um but if if a, a part of the body is not functioning and is not receiving um let's say my arm is not receiving the blood and 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 it, it becomes paralyzed right it, it does not function and it, it does not help the rest of the body with anything. When you are born, they don't take a part of your body and put it aside. They don't take your arm and it functions by itself. In other words, there is no way a Christian can truly function while they neglect the gathering together of the saints. No way. God calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light he changes and transforms our identity from being children of wrath sons of disobedience 
and he crowns us with a new identity children of god saints these saints are to be characterized by being part of a community a community that reflects him a community that is characterized by love by hope by peace amen may god bless you may god bless you may god increase you may god strengthen you i understand especially during the pandemic it's so hard sometimes it's so hard to wake up to to get out of bed but the fact that you've done it shows great progress it shows that god is truly doing something in your lives and i cannot do anything but rejoice in what god is doing amen let's pray our dear heavenly father our lord and god you're a gracious god a loving god a kind god we want to praise you god we want to thank you that christ has truly done it what we could not do for ourselves christ has truly accomplished it when we could not draw near to you because our sin separated us from you christ became the perfect sacrifice and because of him we are accepted in your sight because of him we are your children because of him we have hope because of him we can live lives that please you in the name of our lord and savior jesus christ we thank you amen